this is the other big conundrum of our era, uh, which has always been the case, um, is, is the fact that uh, freedom comes with a lot of responsibility, a lot of critical thinking, a lot of difficult choices. And the simple truth is that most people don't want freedom. Uh, they want comfort and security, and they will happily um, swap freedom for comfort and security when given the opportunity. And they will continue to, to do that until they lose both freedom and comfort and security because they, they gave away all of their power. Um, history is simply a series of cycles of that happening again and again and again, and each generation forgets that trade-off. That is Andreas M. Antonopoulos and this is episode 25 of the Blockchain Pro podcast. Welcome to episode 25 of the Blockchain Pro Podcast. I'm Adriana Bellotti, and today's guest is everyone's favorite evangelist, Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Andreas is one of those charismatic people that commands the room in a way that has the audience hanging to his every word. I've been lucky to see him speak twice at our Bitcoin Sydney Meetup and probably watched over 100 hours of his online content, not to mention I've read two of his books. So he has been a big part of my Bitcoin education. For his technical expertise, yes, but also his kindness and willingness to speak up about issues beyond Bitcoin, such as diversity and inclusion. I'm truly grateful to have had the opportunity to interview Andreas so you can also get to know a bit more about the man behind the books, the talks, and everything in between. So here we go. Let's get to know Andreas. Hello, Andreas. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Adriana. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely. That, that's my pleasure. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's uh, jump right in and let's do a quick career background. How did you start it and what are you doing up to the point right before discovering Bitcoin? Oh, well, um, I've been uh, kind of in love with computers since I was uh, 10 years old um, when I got my first computer. And um, it's been the passion of my life. Uh, I've been always interested in technology, especially computers and um, programming. And so I've been tinkering with computer systems ever since I was a child. I started uh, programming when I was 10 and I uh, continued throughout my teenage years doing various things around computers. And then I studied computer science in university and distributed systems uh, and networks as my master's degree. And I uh, was very involved in 
uh, and interested in cryptography and applied cryptography, um, how to change things in society by implementing strong cryptographic systems. Um, what's now known as the cypherpunk movement. Um, I was very involved in that in the, in the 90s and very interested in it. And then I uh, spent my whole career working on information security, networks, distributed systems, and I missed the beginning of Bitcoin, really didn't um, hear about it very much, ignored it at first because I, I didn't realize what it was. And then it wasn't until 2012 that I um, chanced upon an article that had a link to the Bitcoin white paper. And when I read the white paper, it completely changed my opinion of what this was. I understood enough from the white paper to understand the impact it would have as a distributed system. And I literally dropped everything I was doing and um, dedicated myself full-time to studying Bitcoin and building a professional impact in that area. That's a really good segue for the next question, which is what was it about Bitcoin that made you want to drop everything? So I had, um, I had always been interested in distributed systems, um, in systems that operate on the internet, uh, not with central servers, but with a loose connection of participating nodes, whether that's um, distributed computing projects like SETI at home, um, the, I don't know if you know about that one, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence that yes. used home computers to study that or various other um, distributed computing pro projects like protein folding and pharmaceutical searches. Um, I was always interested in things like BitTorrent um, and, and really the, the distributed nature of the web. I, I'd also been involved in, in cryptographic systems. I'd worked in finance, um, for many years doing information security financial services firms. And so I got a really good sense of how the financial system works behind the scenes, the technology, the systems, but also the architecture, the process, the policies that operate inside financial services firms. And once you see how the sausage is made, um, <laughs> you don't really want to eat it anymore. Um, and, so when I read the white paper, the thing that immediately struck me is I understood that this was a very decentralized uh, distributed system, that it was a system where no one really was in control. I didn't quite understand mining, but I understood enough about proof of work. I was familiar with some of the previous implementations of uh, proof of work through systems like Hashcash. Um, which is the invention of Adam Back that's mentioned in the white paper, uh, one of the precursors to Satoshi's proof of work implementation. And um, I was familiar with digital cash systems from DigiCash and um, uh, all of the previous attempts to apply cryptography to money. And it all clicked. It, it just pushed every single one of the buttons um, that I was looking for. And the, it just fascinated me from the very beginning. There's, there's this feeling, I can't really explain it, but um, when I look at technology, um, some technology, when I look at it, it looks to me, um, it appears elegant, uh, beautiful, 
well-structured, well-proportioned. Um, I can't really describe it exactly. It's, it's more of an intuition mm-hmm. about how a technology is architected or constructed. And other technologies ap- appear um, ugly, right? Mm-hmm. And when I read the white paper, what, what I saw was something, something beautiful, something elegant, and it, it captured my attention. Okay, so besides Bitcoin, which gives people the freedom to exit the traditional financial system if they so choose to, which in itself is a pretty awesome thing, um, what do you think is the most exciting promise of this technology? Uh, For me, I think the, the most exciting promise is the ability to to build systems of trust that no one controls um, systems where there is a set of rules you can trust that these rules are going to be executed um, you don't have to trust in the other participants um, to treat you fairly because the system um, protects the rules and uh, and no one can change those rules arbitrarily it takes an enormous effort to change the rules even a tiny bit. And so to me, that, that basis of uh, trust, uh, or as I call it, rules without rulers, um, that's the elegant invention. Um, of course, if you have a network of trust, uh, one of the most obvious and first applications is to use it to implement money and commerce and payments, because those are things that require a lot of trust. And they're also things that um, the way we implement them today with institutionalized trust is not only doesn't scale, um, it, it excludes a lot of people and it gives enormous power to those who are in the position of trust, which they abuse. So money is the first obvious application, but of course it's not the only application. Um, society runs on trust and uh, any application of trust in society can find a new architecture in these networks of trust. Um, and I, I think that's a very exciting and interesting thing because it allows us a new avenue to explore how we build systems of trust within a society. And it allows us to explore alternatives to the existing systems of trust, uh, especially where we see those not working very well. Uh, that's very interesting. Um, have you read a book or heard of a book called Life After Google? I don't think I have, no. I, I've heard of it, but I haven't read that particular book. I totally recommend that book. It was written by George Gilda, who wrote Life After Television, kind of mm-hmm. predicting how computers were going to be in our pockets in this century, yada, yada. So in this book, he called blockchain as the new architecture of the internet, where blockchain is the new security architecture that allows people to keep their information, albeit distributing across the network, just like human intelligence is distributed Mm -hmm. across the world. Um, And I think that's really, really an interesting point of view especially when you try to, when you think of how the internet is today and how it's centralized behind this, you know, walled gardens of Google and Amazon. Um, 
and in, in the, the book, the premises, we're going to move past that with the decentralization. Yes. Do you think we need this evolution? And if so, when, when should it come? Is, is now the time? Um, well, the, the time, actually, I think the best time was 1995. <laughs> and um, one, of the, one of the problems we have is that um, the internet was built without the necessary security and privacy in the beginning. And we, I think we underestimated um, how quickly that gap would be exploited by governments and companies in order to um, erode the privacy of everyone. I think, um, you know, in, in many cases, in many countries, it's, it's already too late. And, um, and there is no path that will allow a free and open, decentralized and secure internet to exist uh, without a, a, some form of political revolution. Um, a good example of that would be China, of course. But there's, you know, already the world lives under uh, dictatorship. More than 50% of the human population live under some kind of totalitarian regime. And so the, the internet has become uh, a very powerful tool for individuals to fight back, but it's also become a very powerful tool for dictators to control people. Um, you don't even it, have to be a dictator. In, you know, in Australia, we have privacy laws that are so draconian, and I don't even get me started on that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, so th the, the thing is that today t you, can, you can be a dictator of the mind in a way that um, doesn't uh, require uh, any of the symbolism, uh, pageantry, and uh, ritual of traditional fascism. Um, you can appear and present all of the symbolism and rituals of uh, democracy um, and, and operate an information fascist state. Um, and quite honestly, Australia is there. Um, Australia has given far too much power to its government over information and has created a very, very dangerous and unfree situation. But the problem here is that um, the reason this has happened is because Australia doesn't have the political institutions to resist this. It doesn't have a Bill of Rights. It doesn't have a, a culture of a resistance to these things that is strong enough um, compared to some of the um, other countries in its alliances. And so it is a very deliberate experiment. Um, mm -hmm. Americans and the American and British governments are using Australia to experiment on how to implement a, a soft Chinese dictatorship in a Western developed democracy. Um, and uh, if that experiment succeeds and every part of that experiment succeeds is then exported to other Western democracies. Uh, the experiments around banning encryption are, have been tried again and again and again in Britain and the US. Um, so far, we've managed to resist, but um, you know, um, unfortunately, Australia is used as a laboratory 
um, for information fascism by um, by the 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 five Western nations that are um, in in a close spy alliance, and, and that's not a conspiracy theory. I mean, it's uh, it's been very clearly documented yeah. by by Snowden and others, um, and it's it, it shows us where we're going to go unless we we change things. Indeed, about changing things. Um, so. There's Bitcoin and there's blockchain. What is the difference between Bitcoin and blockchain? I have a lot of people that listen to the show that are completely new to this world and they come through via the blockchain lens, right? I want to work in this mm -hmm. space. There's a lot of work to be done. How, how, how do I do this? So what is the difference between the two and how, how can people get involved in working in blockchain? Right. Um, so I, I think it's important to um, look at these terms very, very carefully because um, there is an active effort to undermine uh, their meaning and dilute their meaning um, and use them as marketing terms that are stripped of all meaningful information. I, I look at blockchain as a component. Um, Block, a blockchain uh, is to Bitcoin what a transmission is to um, an automobile. Um, and just like the transmission to an automobile, it's not the most interesting part of that invention. Mm -hmm. um, you need it in order to operate, um, but you could replace it with other alternatives that are similar in function. Uh, and we've already seen that. I mean, there are other systems that operate without a blockchain that either sequence transactions directly or use other structures. Um, Ethereum is moving to a series of um, sharded um, side chains effectively. Mm -hmm. but. On the other hand, if you try to operate uh, a blockchain without the other characteristics that make Bitcoin interesting, um, it's a bit like trying to operate uh, a transmission without an internal combustion engine um, and any of the other inventions that make an automobile interesting. What you end up with is not that interesting. Um, sure, you could use a transmission to you know, power an electric train or something like that, but the things that make the automobile interesting are the ability to move freely in the space without following rails. It's the ability to be directed by one person who's the driver. It's the ability to go faster than a horse. It's the ability um, to be used by people of all ages and with minimum technical training, right? And mm -hmm. similarly, the, the, the Bitcoin invention is uh, all about decentralizing power. And in order to do that, it uses a blockchain, but that's not the most interesting part of it. What's the most interesting invention in Bitcoin is um, the consensus algorithm, which mm -hmm. we call proof of work, which allows us to um, decide who has the power to record things in the blockchain in such a way that we that that power is given temporarily based on a competition in which the participants cannot cheat um, because it uses a, a system of reward and punishment to ensure fairness. 
That is the, the stunning invention. And that invention required a blockchain and it required digital signatures and it required a peer-to-peer network and it required many other components. But at the end of the day, that's the amazing invention in Bitcoin. It's not the blockchain, it's the proof of work consensus algorithm. And all of the interesting features of Bitcoin come out of this decentralized consensus algorithm. I have an acronym that I use to differentiate between a blockchain that's just marketing and the type of decentralized open public blockchain that is Bitcoin and has meaningful properties. Because we're trying to escape from the financial system, I imagine a parachute and jumping out. And so the acronym is RIPCORD. Okay. And RIPCORD means, um, describes the features of Bitcoin as revolutionary. Uh, first and foremost, it's revolutionary. It's not a minor adaptation to change. It's a radical adaptation to change. It changes everything. It's immutable. Uh, and that's one of the most important features of it. No one can change the past. Um, without um, enormous cost, and the further back they try to change, the higher the cost. And that's a capability that doesn't depend on a blockchain. It's a feature of the proof-of-work consensus algorithm. It's uh, public. Uh, everything operates in the public, um, and as a result, uh, it can be audited. It's transparent. Uh, everybody knows how it works. It's um, collaborative. Its power depends on the collaboration of all of the participants. It's open. Um, and that's a really important thing because openness means that anyone can participate without vetting, without authorization. It means that all of the participants have an equal level of access. The system behaves neutrally towards different participants. Um, it doesn't discriminate between them. It's resistant to um, it's resistant to censorship, it's resistant to confiscation, it's resistant to blacklists, it's resistant to all of these attempts to control it and change the rules. And finally, it's decentralized. And the decentralization capabilities come out of the combination of technologies. And most of the time when you hear the word blockchain, the things they're talking about are none of this. They're, they're not ripcord, they're not, revolutionary, immutable, public, collaborative, open, resistant, or decentralized. They're none of that. Um, and that makes them boring. They might be useful um, to some companies. They might be slightly better than the alternative, which is a SQL database that's controlled by one entity. And they, they're fancy databases that are a bit more distributed than before. But they're, they're not what Bitcoin is. Um, okay, so as we try to change the internet and let's say take it take back um, How how do we use blockchain to do that? Well, if we if we use open public Blockchains that have all of these features that I just talked about what that allows us to do is create systems that have rules that are predictable where no one can basically take over these systems and apply their own will and disenfranchise the participants. You know, the, the problem with all of the centralized systems on the internet, these walled gardens that you talked about before, 
is that when you operate in these systems, um, the rules are set by the owners of these systems, and they can be changed anytime they, they want at whim. Um, and you have to adapt to these new rules. And if you don't like it, you get kicked off. Um, so these systems that are multinational in nature, that control the information flows between millions or billions of people, uh, are managed in a, in a process where um, there is no democratic control, there is no oversight, there is uh, no power um, for the participants in the system, and the power is completely centralized in the hands of a very, very, very few. And that is incredibly dangerous, um, especially when we use these systems to run our, our, social, uh, our lives and our societies. The way we would use a, a blockchain to, um, to change this is to have systems where the rules are set in the software. The participants have power. Um, it's a voluntary participation system and um, no one can change the rules at whim. No one, everyone has to play by the same rules. If you don't like the rules, you can create a different blockchain with a different set of rules, but maybe no one will follow you if you do that. Um, but That's most, most importantly, the participants have power. Yes. Creating a new blockchain sounds like 2017 for me. Everybody had a revolutionary, immutable, public, collaborative, open resistance and decentralized idea that they had to sell to someone else. Yes, of course, and and that's. But you know, the, the interesting thing is that as 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 messy and ridiculous as that is, yep. Um, what it is is an expression of pluralism. It's an expression of a free and open market. The fact that anyone can create uh, a, a new blockchain and invite anyone else to participate means, of course, that a lot of um, very poor, poor ideas get executed. Um, but it also means that no one can uh, prevent or control who starts a new system. And that means that ultimately the market uh, participants get to decide if they want to adopt these systems or not. And um, just because you create something doesn't mean any, anyone will use it. That, that's, that messy um, open system, uh, as messy as it is, and as much as it requires personal responsibility, critical thinking, uh, analysis, and, and careful um, consideration by, by the participants so they don't get fooled into using something that, that, that's, that's not really a good choice, um, it gives people a lot of freedom. You know, the, this is the other big conundrum of our era, uh, which has always been the case, um, is, is the fact that uh, freedom comes with a lot of responsibility, a lot of critical thinking, a lot of difficult choices. And the simple truth is that most people don't want freedom. Uh, they want comfort and security, and they will happily um, swap freedom for comfort and security when given the opportunity. And they will continue to, to do that until they lose both freedom and comfort and security because they, they gave away all of their power. Um, history is simply a series of cycles of that 
happening again and again and again, and each generation forgets that trade-off. Um, in, the, in the case of blockchains, the same thing applies. Uh, the, the fact that it's an open market and anyone can participate and you can choose to use any blockchain you want and people are creating all of these scammy things all of the time um, means that you have to be very careful and you bear responsibility to make careful choices. And people don't want that. Uh, a lot of people don't want that. They want, they want to be told which one is the correct one and uh, not have to have any responsibility over that. Um, but the problem is we already have that system. You know, if you want that system, go to traditional banking, go to traditional institutions and have someone else tell you what's true or not. Exactly. So what are you, what are you up to now? You've wrote uh, another book, Mastering Ethereum. So you've wrote oh. Mastering Bitcoin, Mastering Ethereum, and there's three books now on your Internet of Money series? Yes. So um, the Internet of Money series has uh, volume one, two, and three, which are e each volume is independent. You have, don't have to read them in order. Mm -hmm. um, they, they all have slightly different themes. Um, the first one was about, uh, volume one is about the vision and power of this technology. It explains what and how and why the Internet of Money is. Um, the second one was more about this comparison between blockchain and um, Bitcoin, or more importantly, between open public blockchains and bullshit permissioned private blockchains that pretend to be. And the third one is about, um, about breaking the bank cartels and creating open systems of finance and the political implications of that. I'm, I'm, so the, each of these books is for people who are not technical, whereas the mastering series is more of a computer science um, college level textbook about how Bitcoin and how Ethereum works. I'm now working on my third book in the mastering um, series for Riley Media, which is Mastering the Lightning Network. Oh, that and that's about a second layer technology uh, being implemented in Bitcoin that allows for very fast, very secure, very private, um, and very inexpensive uh, payments to flow um, on top of Bitcoin. I'm working on that. It's been delayed, uh, unfortunately, um, partly because um, writing a book is hard and um, mm -hmm. delays are part of the process, but partly because of uh, uh, the pandemic um, and the disruption that's caused, but it's, it's moving along. And um, I'm continuing to do um, a lot of public education with videos uh, just past the 500 mark. So we yeah, have 500, <laughs> yeah, 500 published videos on my YouTube channel, which is crazy to think about. Uh, when I started the YouTube channel, I was just trying to, have a place where I could collect some of the talks I did at conferences, and it's it's taken on a a life of its own. Uh, and just continuing with that, you know, it's what people don't really see behind the scenes is that in order to to do public, neutral, and open source and free ad free education uh, in as many languages as possible. Uh, it takes it takes a lot of uh, a lot of people working very very hard. I have a, a team of nine people 
um, behind the scenes working across the various um, publishing efforts and providing all of the operational and production support. Um, and so it's, it's a whole different scale than when I first started in, in Bitcoin. That's really great. Uh, is your te team decentralized? Is uh, people everywhere in the world? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> all over the place. I'm, I've, I've been working from home and running decentralized uh, virtual teams since the mid-90s. And so um, to me, this isn't new. Yep. Uh, I've always worked like this. Um, and um, and in, in many cases, I've worked with people for years and never actually met them in person. Um, so it's, it's, it's not at all unusual for me to run a decentralized team. And this is one of them. So for the kids out there who, who are looking to, you know, work in the space, how can they get involved? Well, um, I think the, obviously the, the first thing is to, to try and figure out what, what skills you have and how they fit into the space. I think a lot of people make a mistake of trying to um, find what the market needs and then mold their own um, behavior and skills to that rather than finding what's unique about their own skills and then bringing that to the market and finding other people who have similar interests. Uh, I think with the internet and, and with kind of the global audience we have, if you find what's unique about your own skills, you can more successfully find um, the right fit for that, the right niche. Um, and you don't have to be a programmer to get involved in this. I, I'm I'm a programmer and it's something I love to do, but I, I don't actually code for work. I, I code for fun and do a few little projects on the side. Um, but there's a lot of need for every profession that you can imagine in this space, uh, whether it's... Um, Communication, education, management, operations, customer service, design, um, user interface, user experience, you know, art, music, every possible skill you can imagine um, is needed because this is a, a broad-based uh, community with a very broad-based system um, and many different solutions being tried out. So uh, every kind of skill is needed. I think a lot of people, when they come into this space, they look at it and go, ah, well, I'm, I'm not a programmer, so I can't really contribute anything. And that's, that's not true. I agree. I'm not a programmer and I'm contributing, I guess. Exactly. This, this is changing um, slowly, but you know, um, the more people that learn about it and understand that this is just not for programmers, the more good people we're gonna have working on making things ripcord. Yes, exactly. All right, um, thank you. I think we, we hit our 30 minutes. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, it's been a pleasure. And that was the extraordinary Andreas Antonopoulos. I hope you enjoyed our chat as much as I did. 
You can connect with Andres on Twitter at A Antonov, at A A N T O N O P. Ping him there, let him know you heard him here. Connect, be merry, follow his content, it's amazing. You can also follow this show, Blockchain Pro, at B L O C K C H A I N P R O underscore. Send us comments, suggestions, or just say hi. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to tell your friends about it. Every like, share, review, help us with getting more people involved in building the decentralized future. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you at the next block. Bye!